Welcome to the Historical Wisdom Podcast, where we share stories of health, healing, medicine, and the histories that frame Native American experience, particularly for tribes and Native people in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, California. Each segment will explore different aspects of what historical trauma means to Native American communities and the healthcare providers who serve them. We share this knowledge with you from the perspective that To understand the history and strengths of Native Americans and how policy and institutions of medicine work, we can improve the delivery of health care and human well-being. For Chihun Piyonkinach, a Gathering of Good Minds project, I'm Juliette McMullen, and we share with you historical wisdom. Today's episode is a conversation about the effects of boarding schools on Native family, knowledge, and life. We have a gathering with Luella Van Thornton, Clifford Trafser, Julie Andrews, John Io, Tammy Ho, and Roseanne Rosenthal. They share their own and their family's experience of boarding schools. When thinking about historical trauma, boarding schools are one of the systematic attacks on intergenerational support and Native families. Central to this policy of cultural genocide was the phrase, kill the Indian and save the man a thinking that to remove any Native knowledge was necessary to life. Despite these attacks, Native families survive and are reclaiming their knowledge, but the wound continues through generations and needs to be acknowledged as part of healing. Our group's generosity in sharing their stories with us is a gift, and we are thankful for the opportunity to talk with them. So let's hear what they have to say. Hi, I'm Tammy Ho. I am an Associate Professor in Gender and Sexuality Studies, and I'm currently the Director of the California Center for Native Nations on campus. I am the steward of, you know, these spaces. This is my second year, and um, I came to California as a child. I was born in Southeast Asia. My family is Sino-Burmese, and I grew up in California, so I love it a lot. Hi, everyone. I'm Cliff Trafser. I'm in the Department of History and I've been here since 1991. Before that, I was at San Diego State for nine years as chair of American Indian Studies. And before that, I was at Washington State University and uh, for five years in both Native American Studies and in the History Department. And before that, I was uh, <laughs> at Navajo Community College, now called the Nay College. Since moving to Riverside in 91, I formed a relationship with the folks at Sherman. My name is Julie Andrews. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I work for Riverside San Bernardino County Indian Health uh, with a grant program for San Bernardino County Department of Behavioral Health, the Native American Resource Center, Sichango Lakota, uh, from the Rosebud Reservation. I'm Juliette McMullen. I'm a professor and chair for the Department of Anthropology and the program director for our Gathering of Good Minds, Chihun Piyonki Notch project. I'm Roseanne Rosenthal. Uh, My background is a nurse, and I came back to school um, to get my degree, first my bachelor's, and then I'm in the PhD program first year in anthropology. I'm Apache and Tiwa. My family comes from New Mexico, but we were relocated over here. And uh, my great-grandma was um, a product of the the boarding schools. Uh It's very 
it touches my heart. I am uh, Dr. John Ayad. I'm a marriage and family. Lakota name is uh, Wazu Wambli, which is which is Eagle Warrior. I'm I'm from uh, the Rosebud in Indian Reservation. Mm -hmm. I'm also a uh, disabled combat veteran. Was in a long time from Viet Vietnam era, with, with my last war being uh, Iraq. Mm -hmm. So I also work with uh, combat veterans. But I love working with uh, families and kids, uh, especially with our people, because mm -hmm. there's uh, not that many of us. My uh, family uh, was was products of the boarding school. My name is Luella. My maiden name is Van. My last name is Thornton, thanks to that one. <laughs> and we've been married for 64 years, thank you, Lord. I was born in northeastern Oklahoma. My father was full blood, my mother only half. I don't know what happened in her early life, but she was the only one of my grandmother's kids that was white. So I never asked about that part of my grandma's life, and I don't know how my mother came to be. I do know that she was treated very badly, not only by my grandma, but... Um, a lot of other people because she was only white. You know, she was half Cherokee and half white. Anyway, my mother sent me to Sequoia Indian. It was a vocational school at first. You went there and they taught you how to do something, cook or um, make shoes or do carpentry or, you know, there are a whole bunch of vocations that they were training. And I, I hear a lot of um, negative things about boarding schools and I hear a lot of positive things. I think it depends on the age you were. I think it depends on um, the influences that you know spoke to you personally and to your environment, how you were raised before you went there, how you were how you thought of yourself even before you went there. Because a lot of my peers, their experience was very negative. And it was because the people that were in charge didn't think of them as being a part of the the world. They hadn't won that particular honor and so they didn't they didn't feel that they had to treat them like real people, I think. I think that was the problem. But in terms of the boarding school itself, as I said, they offered training in certain things. And I remember one group that we had there one time, I was already uh, a junior or senior, and so this new bunch of kids came in and where'd they come from, you know? Oh, these are Choctaw kids, and they, they come from Mississippi. So had brought these Choctaw kids up there. Most of them couldn't speak English, and they had like a 17 and 18 and 20 years old, and they were still in little grades. You know, they hadn't even been in school. So that was a negative because they had to find a place to fit these kids in where, number one, they would learn English so they could get along in the world. Number two, they could read well enough to make their life better, and they could learn something to keep them going while they were here, you know. And after I got away from school, I didn't think much about it, but when Juliet brought this uh, program, it really got me in the gut to have all those finally come together and finally realize what really had happened to me. I was just happy as a little bird, you know going through my life and getting all my things done and being always the best. I was the A student. And uh, all around me were these sad stories. You know, these people from, from Mississippi, the chopped up people, they're already adults. And they put them back in a grade where they would learn to read and write and, and be a member of society. Later on in California, I was an activist. I helped get the urban Indian clinics going. So we, we fought for urban clinics to be started 
uh, elsewhere, but on the reservations. And so I was active in that. And I hope that will be my legacy. But uh, I don't know, I've had a good life, I think. <laughs> I mean, that's just me, but no, I, I, I'm proud of the, of the life that I've had. I'm grateful for the blessings that I've enjoyed. That's great, you know, and it really speaks to the, the experiences yeah. that people have. You know, yeah. Well, mine was pretty them. positive, I have to mm -hmm. say that. I have a story to tell. I was doing an interview with a Yavapai man, um, Ted Vaughn was his name. He was an elder uh, with Yavapai Prescott. And the, the consultation I was having with him was about sacred lands on a military base. And his grandparents had lived in this landscape that's uh, the uh, southwestern part of Arizona. And so I would ask Ted, so uh, where, where were, where, what did your grandparents say were the villages when they lived down there? Where was that located? He says, oh, they took that away from us. Mm -hmm. And so I'd go on and say something else, asking a question, and he would say, oh, I wish I could tell you, but they took that away from us. And, and so I finally stopped him and says, what do you mean by that, Ted? And he says, oh, you know, the boarding schools, they took my grandparents and they took them away from their homeland mm -hmm. and broke them away from their, their landscape so they could not tell me where it was they were as kids when mm -hmm. they lived uh, in the desert and in the mountains of <coughs> southwestern Arizona. So he knew of only one village site. But I thought, how telling that they took that away from us, or from my family. That's really deep. It is. You know, and I, it kills me to hear those things. They tore him away, mm -hmm. and so he couldn't answer that. You lose a whole section of a person's potential when you've interfered like that. It, it's awful. It really mm -hmm. is. For all of you to know, they forced those people um, First to Camp Verde and mixed them with Apaches and then took yeah. them over to San Carlos mm -hmm. and then they couldn't care for everybody so they just told them to go away. And so they tried to go back to that area but they didn't know exactly where to go and, mm -hmm. and how to live in the desert as their parents had lived because uh, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a stark environment in the middle of the Colorado desert. It's a part of the Sonoran Desert. Uh, close to Yuma, and so most of them found jobs digging uh, canal systems mm -hmm. and did that kind of work. But that separation yeah. that you hear about early boarding schools. Mm -hmm. Boarding schools differ just over time periods, you know, who's, who's in charge and yeah. what's happening there. Uh, Luella, you talked about uh, older students, and Sherman was full of older students initially. Mm -hmm. um, it could be 18, 19, 20 years old and be in the first or yeah. second grade yeah. because, yeah. And so they were in there with those little duffers. You can imagine how they felt. You know, these are young adults and then being placed in first grade with. You know, it, it seems like they could have just had one class for them. Yeah. You know, it would have been less embarrassing. Something transitional for them. Yeah. You know, I think when we talk about boarding schools and the impact that it has on health care, when I look at the boarding schools now, well, I look at Sherman, that's my experience, right? I, I went to boarding school, but it was a Catholic board. It was the first mission, San Diego de Alcala, and I was there for two years. Um, it was uh, better than the alternative. <laughs> my other sister went back to the reservation with my mom and lived with her grandma and had a very 
difficult time because mm -hmm. we had been living in Texas. So here she was, you know, uh, mixed blood because my her father mm -hmm. was Mexican and she went back to the reservation and she had a Texas accent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she got hell from the mm -hmm. res girls out there and had to learn how to fight and all that kind of stuff and suffered some of those horrible things that happen out there to her. But um, for us, it was it was okay. I mean, it was all that we knew, you know, and uh, the, the nuns were, were good to us. But I do remember that sense of loneliness and my dad was in the military, so he was overseas, and uh, we had gotten taken away from my mom. And sometimes our relatives would come and get us, and sometimes they wouldn't, and we would go up to the rectory and sit there and wait for them to come, and then sometimes they wouldn't come, and so we would go take our little bags and go back to our Dorm. dorms. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and I uh, had that awareness when I was at that genocide conference this last year because there's that sense that, well, it's not the same. Right? It wasn't hundreds of years ago, and it wasn't that level of maltreatment. And, and all, but that sense of loss was so heavy for me that day. I was like, wow, like that was hard. You know, there was a loneliness. And even though my sisters and my brother were there, we weren't together, but we would see each other. So I can kind of imagine what that was like. We hear stories about uh, families in, in, in the boarding schools before and what that was like for them. but. When I think about Sherman today and the work that I do there with their youth, and I, and I was just talking to um, Roseanne about Sherman, and the, there's one LCSW there for all of those students, one mental health professional, and not someone that those children will go talk to. And, and I hear that, that we do a talking circle, and they come and they talk to us about the things that they leave at home and the things that they bring with them and the things that they're experiencing there, their depression and anxiety and stress and you know families health issues and and so not having access to adequate care right I don't know what their medical care is like I know there's a gal uh, one of the uh, the teachers in the choice storm was asking about eyeglasses so this girl can't get eyeglasses she needs them her eyeglasses are broken um, and I don't know why she's not able to get them through IHS there but um, they, they come to our clinic and get eyeglasses. And that's just one person that we know about. We're talking about things like uh, other health issues. We don't even know what that looks like, right? Mm -hmm. But that there's that um, experience of, uh, a current day experience of being away from home. Most of them, a lot of them come from Arizona, New Mexico, uh, the Dakotas, and Minnesota, and, and so being away from home and not getting the adequate care that they need as a result of being where they are. Mm -hmm. right? You can't just turn to your family and say, tell me how, mm -hmm. where should I go or how does this work? Yeah. You're just there. And you know, those, those young people are struggling with sleep disturbances and mm -hmm. anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And you know, that the food, the, uh, oh, right. I guess in the previous administration, the, the, they changed up the, um, menus for, for cafeterias, and so they you know, went a little healthier, I think, but the kids are still, like, they're hungry, you know? They're not I, getting enough food to eat. That's right. Yeah, Robert Perez had mentioned that they are on a strict calorie surveillance with the food at Sherman, that, yeah, the kids don't get enough calories. They're, yeah. they're hungry. Yeah, they're hungry. So we, you know, we feed them every time. We, we, don't, we don't get to feed them at choice. But when they come to us at the clinic, we have, we have a meal for them, and they're always real happy. But 
you know, in in overall picture, less calories is good, right? Because most of us are overweight. But when you're looking at these young people and their, you know, food's a comfort. You know, we were talking last night about coping skills and it's like food, you know, eating. We'll eat, eat, you know, what are good things to eat? Ice cream or, you know, the food choices are affected by that, you know. And we were always talking to somebody um, yesterday and we were talking about that idea that we're sending our kids to boarding school because we went to boarding school. And a lot of times those kids that are coming to Sherman, they're kids that are getting in trouble at home. Mm-hmm. And so the parents are saying, let's send them. This has got to be better than where we are now mm-hmm. and the things that they're getting into. And so they come to Sherman. And I can't speak for what Sherman does. I can only speak to what the kids are telling me. We had a young lady in our group last night and, and, and very uh, upset, very emotional. And we talked to her about going to talk. And I'm not going to go talk to her. She doesn't listen to us. She doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. you know. And so there's that real... Uh, why aren't there more resources? Why aren't there more, you know, why aren't they doing, you know. It's easy to call the shots from the outside and see the, the deficits, but but it, it raises that question of why are we not providing more resources for these young people there, yeah. you know, and how is that going to affect their health long term, right? They're, not, they're just not just physical. their mental health, but yeah. physically as well, exactly. right? Because of all of those things that we're turning to as, as coping mechanisms, whether mm-hmm. it's alcohol. Most of the reason that those kids are in the choice term is for substance use. Mm-hmm. And so that's their go-to coping mechanism. You know, when we talk to them about their families and what, what are we doing at home, what do you see, mo- you know, there's no role models. They're all doing those kinds. That's what they're telling us. Even Indian Health Services, and we've talked about this before, is, you know, less funded even than the Veterans Administration, you know. And in this, in this recent administration, we lost, uh, I think, a couple of million dollars in funds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're fortunate, I think, in this in this area because we're, we're a consortium, and so we pull our dollars together and, and uh, are able to provide good health care, I think, you know, for, for people in our communities. But... Um, other reservations are not that lucky. They mm-hmm. have just their little small clinic, and they serve the people that that are their tribe, and and so those things like the the health issues that we're looking at, diabetes and obesity and heart disease and all of those things are why are why are we not being able to make headway there? When I think about uh, historical trauma in the uh, boarding schools, you know. And- there's uh, times when I when I think about how it affected my family, me, you know, I get oh, mm-hmm. you know, and I and and a uh, good example is that uh, I'm a alumni here, class of class of uh, 2002. Uh, I have a picture of when of when I graduated and they had the uh, ceremony out here <coughs> by the by uh, the bell tower, and and I have a picture of my of my mom and she was alive and she was in her uh, wheelchair and I was standing behind her and I had my cap and ground gown on and had a real big smile. You know, my mom was just a sitting there. She had just had that, uh, what they would call a, 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 a stoic look on her face, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then uh, later, and I, and, and I had that picture. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's blown up in my house for my kids. And I asked mom, 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 weren't you happy that I, that, that I had graduated? Because I was really uh, the first one in my family that that's that's gone as far as getting a formal education. She was saying, "Oh, oh, gee, John, I was so proud, and 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 it, and, and it uh, made me feel good." And well, I just see you smiling, mom. And and she said, "Well, uh, she was saying that uh, that when they took her away from her family and when she was in a boarding school, 
that that uh, that she was used to being with her with her uh, brothers and sisters because you know Indians are all from large from from a large families and she was saying with uh, Indian families you know there's a lot of laughter and, you know and and you have a lot of brothers and sisters and uh, cousins that to play with while they while they took her to other boarding school and the first thing what they what they did was they was they told them that they that they couldn't speak their uh, their uh, language anymore and and uh, she remembers all uh, the nuns and the, and the teachers there uh, slapping them and then I dragged them to to the bathroom and I uh, putting putting a uh, lye soap in her mouth and then when uh, she told me that they told her that they that uh, they weren't worthy uh, to be uh, humans that they that, that they needed uh, to be white and that they uh, couldn't laugh, and that they uh, couldn't cry, and she was saying that that was something that that was that was uh, beaten into them. And to bring it forward, she was saying that that's that uh, that's the reason why in that in that in that picture that she uh, couldn't smile because because it was still something from a long long time ago. And and at the time, my mom was maybe about uh, seventy five years old, and I got real real mad. I was like, man, my mom's been holding that in for. Mm-hmm. For 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 uh, seventy five years, and mm-hmm. you know, and this is the first time that I that I heard that, and I found out later that it just wasn't me, but it was my whole generation, mm-hmm. because of their parents, went on, went on through the same experiences, and that's when I learned about our uh, historical trauma. Uh, we had a rule at my house when you when you were eighteen years old, you either joined the military, uh, got a job, and uh, move out. Okay, and that's and that's what it was like. College, you know, I wanted to go to college. Okay, but. Even as a teenager, uh, I was told I was stupid, you know, and and I ended up wanting to uh, drop out of high school because it was at that time when when uh, they would allow you to because I was so angry and and getting bullied and and then being told all this negative stuff. But my mama said, "No, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. You know, you are uh, going to go to school, and that's how and that's how it is." And I ended up going to a continuation, and then when I graduated, uh, the only thing for us then was was uh, the military and that's how I became a soldier you know and it was during uh, the time when Vietnam was going on and you know nobody wanted to be in the service then you know but that was part of us you know I was a soldier and I made a career out of it and I have two two brothers who were Marines and, a, and it was after I uh, got out and I became my mom's uh, caretaker that that I started to learn more because we uh, talked a lot and it, and it was my mom who inspired me to go on with my education, and uh, I thought I was uh, stupid. My mom said, no, uh uh-uh. My mom's uh, favorite line was that she didn't raise stupid babies and she didn't raise uh, ugly babies, <laughs> you, know, you know? And so I started school. You know, I was very, very proud to uh, graduate from here, and, and I think of UCR as being my school, and I, and I met some good people along the way. Cliff uh, saved me long, long, long time ago, and then we uh, became friends, and we're, and we're our lifelong friends, and, and then uh, everybody else, you know? and. I, I never thought that I was going to become involved in uh, mental health because of the job that I had when I was in the military unit, and it uh, just clicked, and I saw that there was a need out here, and that's how I got involved in it and stuff. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences in the military and working with com- you know, combat veterans that you mentioned earlier and the boarding school experience, because... You know, when you were talking about your mother and how she was, you know, forced to not express her emotions, right? Yep. Uh, a lot of uh, military narratives that I've read, particularly from women of color, right, talk about the military also being a kind of training in, you know, toughness and, and courage, but also, you know, a certain kind of conformity. So I'm wondering 
if you could talk a little bit more about your experience both as a veteran and and working with veterans around. Indian military, uh, I was amazed the first time when I was in our basic training because I went into a mess hall, okay, and the mess hall had, it was all the food that, that we could eat and they had the soda machines and the milk and the milk machines. I actually thought that I was going to have to pay for the uh, food because I was never exposed to that. So it was a new world for me. And then uh, people thought because I was Native American that I had these mystical powers, you know? <laughs> you know, you know, and I guess it's from, from, from all the war movies and stuff, <laughs> you know? And there was a lot of racism in there. It was, there was, there, uh, there was a lot, you know, but, uh, but in the uh, special operations in the uh, airborne units, they uh, judged you by your, by your uh, skills. And, and, and I found out I was, I was uh, very, very good. And I remember I had a mother who was very mad at me. She was angry, and, I, and I've had some wives that were real mad at me be, because their husbands uh, complained to them that I was a terrible person. And I, and I told them, well, I'd be happy that I brought him back and that, and that he's able to complain to you, you know? <laughs> you know? And I just didn't have to worry about him. I had to worry about, about uh, all these other people. Uh, so it made me a little bit more uh, stronger inside because I found out that even though there was racism and there was some people that told me I was bad, it, it made me stronger because I became more vocal. And like even now, when I have to deal with, with people in the outside world, uh, 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 I had somebody tell me, tell me on Monday that I, that, I mean on Tuesday, that I respected a lot, that I was very, very pushy. <laughs> You know, and it and it uh, surprised me. I was like, oh gee, oh gee, oh gee, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be that. You know, but you know, but you have, but I learned to, uh, I learned to be vocal. But I just don't do it for for myself. Uh, I do it to help others because because I advocate for for our own people or other people and and especially veterans. You know, one thing I appreciate about being a Native American veteran is that our own people honor us. My, uh, my own people gave me the name uh, uh, Wazoo Wombly, Eagle Warrior, in my, in my language. And, and I see it because I'm a warrior with my own people, but I'm a warrior with the outside world too. And as, and as part of being a, a warrior, we, we have to protect our, our people still, and we have to look out for them. So, so even though I'm not in military anymore, uh, I still look out for, for everybody out here. And it's not just it's just not just our people, but but those in the in the community too. And and I understand, you know, a lot of the oh gee, when you talk about his historical trauma again, you know, the uh, one thing with our people is that uh, is that we have our own ceremonies and, and our own way of uh, helping not just the warriors, but anybody who served in the in in the uh, service. Uh, we don't uh, forget them. You know, it uh, took me with my education uh, uh, to find out with, with uh, historical trauma. You know, you know that's that that's all tied into that. It's all tied into me, and it's all tied into, to the to the uh, generation, and my, you know, my mom and dad still. You know, uh, it's oh, jeez, you know. But I find out that it's not just me and my family. It's everybody's family. Thank you so much for sharing. Oh, that you know and as you said that it's not just in you but it's the, the generations different experiences with boarding schools with the war and and so as everyone's been sharing you know hearing experiences around loss being taken away from families um, kind of being made to feel that 
you don't have the knowledge necessary being told it as you said that you're bad but then also reclaiming native knowledge and your strength and your voice um in changing things and so that's exciting to hear as you were saying you know that we have a group of educated health workers here with us Mm -hmm. um, talking about this and so it's important to remember the boarding schools it's important to remember the service and its impacts you know and then where are we now and so thinking about talking with the physicians in Indian Health what is it that you would want them to take away or to know about boarding schools and historical trauma when they're interacting with um, their patients? I would want them to know that we're talking about a lot of children. That they're just small children, and this is very traumatic for them to go into the boarding schools. Not everybody. But I have a, a dear friend, Rita Kusawun, who's Comanche, and as a little girl, her mother got tuberculosis and was put in a, in a hospital. Her father drifted away. She was handed over to family members, and she can't even remember who took her in. And then they took her to the Fort Sill Indian School and just dumped her off there. And she couldn't speak English, and she was confused. And she said, what I remember the most was they told me this was my bed. You know, like, this is my place on earth now. And some of the other girls would speak to her in command. She, she couldn't speak English and had to learn English. And it was difficult because she was being punished by sending her downstairs in a basement that was very frightening, and they would hear ghosts down there. And they would set these little children down on the bottom step and not allow them to come up. And they were just very frightened. Uh, little kids... And then, so I said to Rita, you are the leading speaker of Comanche today. How did you keep your language? And she said, even as a little girl, I understood what they were trying to do, and I thought, they're not going to do that to me. So I started, every night, I would sing to myself, I would pray in my language, I would talk to my relatives, and I kept my language that way. But the idea that this these are little children and this is happening to them and to be that torn apart is uh, just so heartbreaking and for the reasons it was done on a, a you know on a national level on purpose mm-hmm. uh, it was to destroy native culture and la- native languages it is a form of cultural genocide yeah. and we need to call it that so some people were able to adjust like she did. She, she spent her whole life in the boarding school till she graduated from high school. Um, uh, but, but she remained very native too. And, and also lives her life from high school forward with no bitterness. Mm-hmm. These things happen, but she was able to overcome that. And, and she is a prayer leader uh, in her community. Um, and she is a healer uh, as well with her husband. They, they did this for 45 years. You know, you met the Kusumuns. But it just breaks my heart to, to think what they did to children. Oh, <coughs> hard. I think that it's difficult for our doctors to see the person in the room in front mm-hmm. of them. And they see when someone is advocating for themselves or for someone else, 
it's taken as being, oh, they're being difficult. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're being pushy. Oh, mm-hmm. they're being angry. I've heard a lot from people and in, in, is that a lot of Indian women are angry, right? Why are they so, they're so angry? Why are they so angry? And it's like, well, if you think about that, then, you know, that experience, that, what, what, what are your options as a child to either go inward or go outward with that pain that you have, that loss, that grief, right? You know, I was thinking about uh, uh, when John was talking about last night, we were asking this group of kids about what are the messages that you get from your family about how to deal with things. And this one young woman said, she said, you suck it up and you quit acting like a little bee. She didn't say bee, she said the whole word, but that's what she said. And I was like, wow. Like that's, you know, where did that come from? <laughs> Came from someplace. Whatever it is that's happened to you, you suck it up and you quit acting like a little bee. I was like, wow, okay. So that way of looking at the world of, of how do we deal with the, all of those things that came from behind us, right? All that grief, all that loss, all that pain, all that um, not, not understanding why this is happening, right? Why are they, why are they, if you don't speak the language and they're hitting you when you speak your language, how, why? You don't, you don't even have that understanding, right? That comes a long way back. But it's translated into current day functioning, right? Current worldviews about Either you got to be loud enough that they're going to pay attention to you or they're going to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing or that they're going to do something different, right? They're going to they're gonna give you what you want. Yeah. And I think that for our clinicians, for our physicians to be able to see that, to see behind the behavior to that trauma, those trauma responses, right, that... What, what goes on in our reptilian brain when someone challenges us, when we're feeling like we're being threatened, whether it's real or imagined, right? It doesn't really matter. The physiological response is the mm-hmm. same. And we've had conversations like that with, with some of the teachers at, at Sherman because what they're seeing is defiance and what they're seeing is disrespect when in fact it might be a trauma response, right? But we don't know if we're not looking in that direction. And I can understand teenagers, a whole group of them, right? And uh, being challenged by them and what that might be like. It's not that we're not aware or, or, or even for a physician to have someone not complying with their treatment plan, right? Like we're asking you to eat healthy and exercise and take your medication in the way that you're supposed to and then you don't. You know, what is that response going to be, that frustration level? And what is that going to look like for them? I'm not really sure for our doctors, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think that uh, we're also having our pediatricians talk to us about our parents and and how is it that our parents aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing for their children, right? Like whether it's vaccinations or... Or obesity, because a lot of our kids are overweight. Why are they giving them sugar and soda and candy? I don't understand. The frustration level is very high. When we talked to them before about, you know, well, how do you think historical trauma plays into that? It doesn't have anything to do with it. These people are just disengaged from their children, right? They're these people. They're just disengaged from their children, right? And so it's like, oh, okay. 
there's a learning opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Not going to happen right now, but somewhere down the road to be able to say, you know, where does that come from? Where does that that stoic, uh, you know, uh, not be, you know, and and we're not, we don't have by any way have a monopoly on that way, right? My my father's family was came from Mexico, and my father was born here in this country, but as a young man, you know, they had uh, eleven kids. And, and everyone worked from a very early age, driving mm-hmm. trucks and all of that stuff. And and um, there wasn't time to be, you know, honey baby, loving, lovey, you know what I mean? And so it was demonstrated in food, clothing, and shelter, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that looked mm-hmm. like for you. That was that. My dad, when I graduated from Loma Linda with my master's degree, my aunt told me, your dad is so proud of you. Really? <laughs> How would you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? He never told me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not that I didn't know that my dad was proud of me. But it wasn't... It wasn't voiceless. Tangible, it was right? Yeah. Yeah. So not, not to say... But as a result of all of those things that have come before us in, and all of those wounds that are carried on through the generations, all those coping mechanisms, all those trauma responses, you know, when you see... The, the level intensified for Native American communities, right? Those risk factors are intensified. And then, you know, and I'm hearing a lot of things about people saying, you know, we, as much trauma as we have, we have as much resiliency. We have as much ancestral wisdom. We have as much strength. We just don't know it. Mm-hmm. We just don't see it. Because we're getting told things like suck it up and quit acting like a wolf, right? Mm-hmm. So to be I able to... I think we're seeing that more, though. I think we're seeing that... Uh, the emergence of some of these qualities that were in our in ourselves for a long time, sure. but finally now, you know, we know that it's okay to voice them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that part has changed a little bit. And in groups like this, I think help. You know, I that, I, I give this group a lot of credit for some of the things that we found out. All of us mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you spoke, it made me think of. Um, Shadows that we all have shadows, and that the healthcare providers just can't see behind us. They can't see that shadow, and that this project is is one that helps them see. You know, at least um, mm-hmm. put some ideas into their head. Going, oh well, I had not thought like that before. Mm-hmm. I gee, and so we all carry shadows, but some people have longer shadows. Mm-hmm. That, terrible things have happened mm-hmm. and that they need to see some of that and and the the sessions that was done you know uh, through this project on the reservations brought forth those shadows they were bringing that forward that will become part of the curriculum that they need to see and really think about mm-hmm. they're going to do this job you really need a little bit more knowledge you just can't drop in and drop out there's something special about what you're doing. Thank you so much for sharing all your stories. We can have multiple episodes just on boarding schools and, and, and their effects, but I really appreciate your thinking around what our doctors should know, you know, to really be paying attention and not take for granted both the small things and the big things that have happened in Native American history, in our own history that we did. And I think Cliff is right, you know, thinking about this as cultural genocide. Mm -hmm. And that is what happened. Aloha for listening to Historical Wisdom. 
We trust that it will help you as you care for yourself and others. Additional wisdom and references about historical trauma and complete interviews can be found on our website, gogm.live. Alawa to Sean Milanovic for sharing the opening and closing bird songs. The podcast was produced by Juliet McMullen and our Chihun Pionk Inach Steering Committee and edited by Catherine Rodriguez and Wyatt Kelly. Content was developed in conversations with community members and our Chihun Pionk Inach Steering Committee that include Sherry Salgado, Luella Thornton, Julie Andrews, Holly Bronner, Veronica Espinoza, Jonelle John, Michelle Opsal, Gina Hughes, Catherine Rodriguez, Anne Cheney, Kendall Shumway, Wyatt Kelly, Sean Milanovich, Amanda Marquez, Laureen Sisqua, Clifford Traster, and Jackie White Spirit. The Historical Wisdom Podcast is funded through an engagement award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. Aloha from the Chihun Piyonk Inach Project, www.gogm.live. Yeah, we can't wake up.